This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, we have, uh, there's no secret that there's a lot of tensions on the international scene, but we can't forget about the fact that this year, this November, we are going to have a gubernatorial election. And we have a lot of problems here in New York State, whether we're talking crime, whether we're talking the economy, whether we're talking the cost of living, uh, whether we're talking the structure of government itself, whether we're talking education. There has never been a time in New York, and I believe that, honestly, uh, that the job of governor matters more than it does right now. So we've been trying to invite all the candidates on uh, for governor and uh, give their two cents as to why they should earn your vote in either the Republican primary, the Democratic primary, or in the general election. Somebody who, uh, since 2002, has come the closest that any Republican statewide has come to actually winning an election is a candidate for governor. Now, he's someone that Republicans for many years have been high on. It's somebody that uh, has generally been thought of as having crossover appeal, as somebody that has money and can raise money to get his message out, and has a record of actually getting some Democrats and independents to vote for him. I'm talking about a Republican gubernatorial candidate, successful businessman, and restructuring expert, Harry Wilson, who's kind enough to join us this morning. Harry, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the radio. Frank, it's great to be with you. It's great to talk with you. Now, you have um, uh, not run for office in 12 years, and I'm imagining that a lot of our, even our politically astute listeners, may not exactly remember who you are and what you're up to. Some people, this might be the first time they've ever heard you. Give us your your brief elevator pitch. What's been your background professionally, and why do you think your uh, career has prepared you well to take on the role of governor at such an important time in New York's history? Sure. So I've spent my entire professional life, nearly 30 years, leading turnarounds of some of the most messy, complicated, broken organizations in the country, uh, everything from General Motors to Sotheby's to Yahoo to largest trucking company in the country, the largest nursing home chain in the country, all you know, real challenges that I came in, in in different capacities to drive the turnaround of. And I think that skill set is exactly what we need at Albany. I think the most broken organization in the country is state government. And as a result of that, this dysfunction, 20 million New Yorkers are suffering every day under that incredible list of problems you, you listed through a few minutes ago. So what's your biggest issue, Harry? What are you going to be campaigning on? And if you're elected, I hope it's okay that I call you Harry. Um, but um, if uh, if you're elected, what's going to be your biggest policy priority? So our whole focus is on creating a holistic turnaround plan for the entire state. So in our first budget in 2023, that will be a turnaround plan for all the largest problems facing today. I think, you know, they, they, or basically the list you gave earlier. I think it's everything from the highest tax burden in the country, the highest cost of living in the country, spiking crime in every city in the state, um, and you know dysfunction in Albany, driven by blatant corruption, um, frankly, on both sides of the aisle, and particularly having had the last two governors who were elected resign in disgrace. And so that kind of holistic approach of ethics reform, of reducing uh, spending and taxes, reducing regulations that drive the cost of living, and re- and reversing some of the uh, bad ideas that came through Albany that have led to the spike in crime, 
all those will be part of our first budget. So um, I think a lot of folks recognize that you're potentially in the best position to win over Democrats and independents. And you did that when you ran against Tom DiNapoli back in 2010, uh, coming within a, a whisper of actually getting elected to be state controller. Before you can make it to November, you've got to win a Republican primary. Uh, we've been talking with a lot of the other candidates. And uh, one of the things that I think they're going to hang on you is that um, you did some work for the Obama administration. And um, if there's a bigger enemy among uh, red meat eating, rock ribbed conservative Republicans that vote in primaries in the state right now than Barack Obama, it's Alvin Bragg. And you made what a lot of Republicans consider to be an unthinkable error in judgment in contributing to Alvin Bragg's campaign for D.A. Um, How do you win over Republicans in the primary and put to rest any doubts they may have about your ability to be a proper Republican standard bearer? Sure. So let me let me go through a couple of things. First, I've been a staunch fiscal conservative my entire life. Uh, you know, I first I got interested in politics when I fell in love with Ronald Reagan at the age of eight in 1980. <laughs> and so, you know, no one has uh, any right to question my conservative bona fides. Um, when we talk about my work at, in leading the, the turnaround General Motors in 2009, let's be clear, I, I crossed party lines to serve our country. And our country was in, was in uh, a really bad place. We're in the middle of a financial crisis. A lot of people were worried that we might fall into the, a second Great Depression, and for good reason. Uh, unemployment had spiked to double digits, and um, you know several sectors of the economy were in massive disarray. And I had this incredible track record of leading the turnaround of really broken organizations. TARP was passed by the Bush administration, and it was clear that under that, there was going to be significant investments in both the auto industry and the financial services sector. And I wanted to lend my skills towards making sure that that was done well and successfully rather than having a lot of bureaucrats in D.C. mismanage it, which I think was would have been the alternative. So, yes, I, I crossed party lines because I thought it was in the best interest of our country. And I, would all, I will always do what's in the best interest of which, which, by the way, I'm all for. I wish more Democrats and Republicans would do that and put service to the country before these petty partisan uh, squabbles. I would have done – like, I'm not a Republican, but I would have done the same thing if a president of either party uh, asked me to use my expertise to solve whatever pressing issue the uh, country was facing. I'm just repeating, you know, what some conservatives sure. have brought up with me. Yeah, but but I think anybody who's ever, ever actually studied it and looked into what we did and what we achieved, they realized what we did was drive significant accountability. We made sure the taxpayers actually made money on the entire uh, venture, and it saved the economy. We saved, um, by most estimates, over a million jobs. Uh, and again, the taxpayer was better, much far better off for it. So it was something that was brought on by the greatest crisis we've had in the last 80 years, um, and, you know, I had a skill set that could really make a difference, and I was happy to do it to, to benefit all those folks and benefit our country. Again, I would do it again. So I think that's, that's the part. And I think, you know, frankly, anybody uh, who is using that, it's, uh, they know how successful it's been. GM went from losing $4 billion a month in 2009 when we came in to record profits, and it's been profitable for 13 years. Some of the same people who criticized it at the time said, oh, GM will be bankrupt again within a year. They obviously were dead wrong. Uh, and so, you know, to me, the, the, the focus and the skill set of taking a really messy, broken situation and turning it around when everybody said it could not be done. If you go back into the press at that point in time, everybody said GM has been shrinking for 55 years. 
Um, no one can fix it. Uh, you might as well just let it go. And they were dead wrong. And that's the same way I feel about New York State. When people say New York State can't be fixed, it's because we have the same failure leadership that I've seen in company after company of career politicians who are more interested in getting elected than they are in serving the people of the state. And that is all that is wrong with New York. With the change in leadership of uh, someone who, like me from the outside, who's not beholden to special interests, who's not going to kowtow to, um, to the uh, lobbyists and, and interests of both of, of either side, we're really just focused on making the state a better place to live and work, uh, reducing cost of living, reducing taxes, reducing crime. That, I think, is exactly what we need. And it's a skill set that's sorely lacking in Albany, which is why we were the mess we're in. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Harry Wilson. He's a Republican candidate for governor, and uh, he is in the midst of petitioning right now. All the candidates are petitioning to get their way on the ballot, except for Governor Hochul and uh, Lee Zeldin, who have been selected by the party leadership. Now, what about this Alvin Bragg issue? I know this rubs a lot of Republican voters the wrong way. They consider the Manhattan DA to be just the worst and the 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 personification of everything that they view as being wrong with the criminal justice system. So to have someone who contributed to his campaign just uh, last year now asking for a Republican vote in the primary, a lot of them take issue with that. Do you care to explain that at all? Sure, sure. And let, let me, the, the, the timing issue is a really important one because that's not actually that accurate. But let me first, as I've said uh, in many places many times, I totally reject Alvin's policies. I think any DA who does not prosecute the law uh, to the fullest extent should be removed from office and the governor has the right to do it. And so if he did not follow the policies and prosecute crimes accordingly, I would remove him from office, period, full stop. And I've said that for the first time the question was posed to me. Now, I did give him a contribution two years ago. And the timing here is really important. The reason I did that was in, in June of 2020, Alvin and I went to college together. And uh, a mutual friend from college organized a Zoom fundraiser in the early days of the pandemic in June of 2020. And got a bunch of people together. Um, everybody gave, you know, a donation. And as part of that, we, we got together on Zoom. We never talked about policy. We talked about each other's kids and how everybody had been, maybe these people I hadn't seen in many years. Um, and that, so that's why I did it. Uh, you know, it was much, much later that his views started to come out. Uh, that memo, um, you know, was, was, came out his first day of office. And so it was well before any discussion. If I had known that he would come forward with those policies, I wouldn't have given him a dollar. But I didn't know that at the time. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, yes, my opponents are using it against me. But let's, let's, let's talk about kind of substance and facts. So the contribution I gave was a tiny, tiny fraction of political donations I've given in my life, less than one-tenth of one percent. It was a tiny, tiny fraction of the money he received. So it was not terribly relevant to either, you know, my giving or to him. Uh, and again, if I had known what he would do and say, I would never have done it. And I, you know, gladly would take it back. Um, on the other hand, my, my opponents, like Congressman Zeldin, uh, for example, spent four years in lockstep support of Andrew Cuomo's agenda, voting for every budget, every tax increase, and he did it because it was in his political interest, he thought, at the time to do it. So let's compare my, my mistake in giving one contribution out of my personal funds two years ago, long before the, the concerns about Mr. Bragg were, were clear, to, you know, Lee Zeldin spending four years of his life being paid for by tax, being paid by taxpayers to defend them and totally advocating that responsibility by voting for the Cuomo local agenda every step of the way. Uh, 
Fair enough. Uh, If you do win and you're in a position to govern, in all likelihood, you're still probably going to be facing two houses of the state legislature that are overwhelmingly Democratic. How can you as a Republican, as a fiscal conservative, govern when you're going to have the legislature trying to probably put the brakes on a lot of the initiatives you're trying to implement? Yeah, absolutely. So this this is a really important thing to, for for people to appreciate and understand, um, because I would not be going into this if I didn't believe I could be successful. Otherwise, it's a complete waste of my time, uh, and I, I try not to waste time. So the reason that I, I believe I can get the Tehran plan done in year one, and the way I would approach it is the governor has extraordinary budgetary authority. Now, in the past. Cuomo used that to get political favors that he thought were important to him, right? Or or to rename bridges for his father. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which I guess was important to him, but wasn't important to anybody else. I right. still call it the tap of the uh, <laughs> But um, in, in any case, you know, that's what he would use it for. I would use it solely for the purpose of helping the people of the state of New York and getting this plan done. So we would propose our first budget. It would be a massive turnaround plan that would remake the state in that first budget. And the, the legislature, for sure, will not like it and will fight me every step of the way. And as you know, if that budget's not passed by March 31st, the legislature doesn't get paid until it's passed. So in my TV commercials, when I talk about how they won't get paid, I fully expect them to fight me um, tooth and nail uh, on that. And I fully expect to go well past March 31st, probably months past March 31st. Uh, but I'm, and I'm prepared to negotiate on the edges. I'm not prepared to negotiate the principles, which is we have to make New York work for people. Uh, and that's, that's how we'll get it done, all in the scope of that budget. And we'll you know, fight as long as it takes. Uh, because that's the only reason I'm running is to make the state work uh, like it used to and be the creative opportunity once it was and was for me and my family. Uh, talking with Harry Wilson, he's a Republican candidate for governor, uh, running in a very competitive primary in June. Now, New York has sort of an interesting system when it comes to governor and lieutenant governor. They run separately in the primary and together in the general election. Do you have a running mate? Are you petitioning for anybody for lieutenant governor, or are you content to have the party's choice of Allison Esposito be your running mate in November? The, the latter. Ms. Esposito will be the lieutenant governor nominee and would you know, want to win the primary be my running mate. Um, one of the questions that I've asked all the other candidates is they all you guys all seem to be emphasizing some of the same issues, um, COVID restrictions, crime, taxes, cost of living. What do you see as the key policy differences, if any, between you and the main three Republicans that are also running, Astorino, Giuliani, and Zeldin? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think the reality is there aren't a lot of policy differences between us. Um, I think, you know, we're, you know, in a a very similar zone across most issues. So I think the real difference uh, between myself and the others, all of them are, are, uh, you know, kind of fine fine people, is one, the ability to actually execute. I'm the only person who's led turnarounds for 30 years and had the success that I've had in doing so. And I think that's exactly the skill set we need. We don't need another politician. We need someone who's going to come in from outside the system to drive major change, come hell or high water. And uh, that's, that's, what, you know, that's, I think, the recipe of success. And then secondly, we need someone who can actually win. <laughs> and as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, in the last 20 years, I'm the only Republican who's come close, run for office once. And uh, I started late. I had no idea what I was doing because I'd never run before, never even worked on a campaign before, but I figured things out. And at the end of the day, we almost beat Tom DiNapoli, who's probably the most popular incumbent in the state. Uh, he's won every other race he's had by 30 points or more. 
And we were able to do it because uh, even though we ran on a very fiscally conservative platform, but we were able to appeal to a really broad cross-section of New Yorkers um, because we were incredibly data-driven, really focused on the facts and focused on things that would make a difference in, in people's lives, um, were incredibly, you know, kind of candid, and I think people trusted them, believed in that. And as a result, a lot of people um, came over. We had 65% of independents and nearly 30% Democrats, which are, as you know, extraordinarily uh, high levels because people had faith that we would deliver for sure. them. Sure. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, no. Uh, absolutely. I was one of those uh, independents that year that uh, that vote that did vote for you, and uh, no, I, I'm you. quite fond of uh, of Tom DiNapoli. And uh, I, I mean, in that election, I thought you uh, actually were going to. You certainly gave him a run for his money. Now, our radio station is owned by a. Greek American, a very mm-hmm. very proud Greek, uh, John Katsimatidis, and he would not forgive me if I asked you. I know you're Greek, but why don't yeah. you have a Greek last name? <laughs> so uh, Ellis Island. So my mom is from Greece. She she moved here uh, from Greece 11 months before I was born. My dad was born here. Both his parents are Greek immigrants. And when my dad's dad went through Ellis Island, he walked in as Ferrios Dedusis and walked out as Harry Wilson. <laughs> and so the first name is a literal translation of is Harry. Um, the Zeus to Wilson was a pure creation. Uh, so that's why I went from being, you know, I'm, I'm first generation Greek American. Greek was my first language. I didn't learn English until nursery school. So I'm, I'm you know, uh, as close to my immigrant roots and heritage as, as you can get. Yeah, my you know my name is Harry Wilson, <laughs> and it sounds like the ultimate wasp name, even though I'm definitely not. It's funny. I know a lot of Republicans were trying to get you to run four years ago, including many mm-hmm. of the same Republican leaders that are now trying to get you not to run this year and rally behind the the party's choice of Lee Zeldin. And I'm sure a lot of Republicans were trying to get you to run for statewide office back in 2014 as well. It's no secret that the Republican Party has had a difficult time over the course of the last 20 years. And you've been one of the few shining stars that the state GOP has had. Why did you choose to, when the Republican Party could have used some shining stars, not to run for statewide office four years ago or eight years ago? And why are you running now? Sure. So, you know, there are multiple elements of my life. I'm not a politician, right? So, I, I, you know, there are a lot of things that matter to me. My most important thing is my family. My business is incredibly important to me and the, and the, the work we do on behalf of saving companies and jobs. And then politics, which is another way for my view to serve and to help save jobs and help people. And so those are the things I kind of weigh was I think about things. And in 18, I, I did seriously think about running. Um, I explored it for a period of time. Uh, but at that point, we had, we had four daughters and all four were at home. And as we went through it, we just realized, my wife and I realized we couldn't do the campaign we need to do, which is, you know, is a 24-7 endeavor statewide and, and have the same, you know, family support and dynamic that was so important to us. Uh, we've been blessed to have, you know, four great kids. Uh, you know, the oldest was a junior in high school at the time going through the college process. And just there were just a lot of things that just didn't really work for us as a family, and that's why I decided not to run four years ago. Um, in early 21, the same folks came to me, including the party leadership and Chairman Langworthy and many others uh, came to me and asked me for 22. At that point, I just taken on the leadership of the largest nursing home chain in the country. Uh, they called me when they were about five weeks away from running out of cash, 40,000 employees, 20,000 patients, and I had a commitment to them that I couldn't walk out on. And so that's why I said no then. 
Fast forward to November of 21, I had just finished the work just before Thanksgiving, and some of that same group of people came back to me and said, not, not Sharon Langworthy, who at that point had declared um, uh, Zeldin the presumptive nominee, but others, uh, and including a lot of business leaders who looked at the field and felt that no one in the field could win and desperately needed someone who could win and actually make a difference in the state. And they all came back to me and said, would you reconsider? And I thought about it. I did my work. I basically said, do I think any of these folks in the field, again, no disrespect to any of them, do I think any of them can win and be a great governor? Uh, if, they, if the answer was yes, I'd, be happily, I'd happily stay at home. But I basically concluded that I didn't think any of them could win, and I didn't think any of them would make the transformational change we desperately need. And so then I started thinking, well, can I, is it too late for me? Can I do it? Uh, can I win and kind of make the change? I'm just confident I can make the impact if I'm elected. And the question is, you know, can I, can I make it through the, both the primary and the general? Uh, and so we pull, pulled our, our team together. And, you know, from my perspective, uh, it's a tough road for sure. I, I recognize that. Um, but I felt like I have the skills to make a huge difference. I felt I had to give it my best shot. Um, you know, the family's fully on board. Two of our girls are in college now. Uh, two are still at home. And they all, you know, suffered through the mismanagement of the COVID pa- pandemic. And, you know, for anybody who has school-age kids who's listening, or, ha- or, or school-age grandkids for that matter, you've seen how detrimental the mismanagement of the pandemic was to kids across the board. Um, and that's, you know, coming from a family where we're really blessed. If, you know, for kids in, a, in the lower-income circumstances or more challenged circumstances, it was that much harder. And so, for, you know, our kids saw the importance of how, uh, how, how important it is to have good leadership in public life that we definitely don't have today. And so that, that flipped in our family, and, uh, and that's, why, you know, that's why I flipped. Uh, so that's, you know, now <laughs> made my road a tougher road because of the timing. But, it, you know, I, I had to ask myself the question, do I think based on where I am now, do I believe I could still win? Um, I do. Uh, I think, you know, we've only been in the race, you know, a little bit over 10 days or so. Um, and I think we've done more in terms of changing the dynamic, getting buzz, getting our message across, resources, building a great team than, than, the, than the folks who have been in the, in the race for a year. Um, and so I think we've, you know, I think we're in a position to, to do well. We have to first get to the petition process, obviously. Um, and then uh, keep taking our message to the voters uh, come, uh, come June 28th. One of the things that uh, Rob Astorino had said yesterday and Andrew Giuliani has said publicly, and my colleague Rudy Giuliani, who's on the radio on our station every afternoon at 3 p.m., has said is they didn't feel as if this process was fair. They felt like it was sort of uh, uh, sewn up by the leadership from the beginning. Do you feel that's the case? Do you feel that uh, the GOP was denied an open process here and that the candidates were denied a fair opportunity to compete? Yeah, so I think, I think there was a determination made by a lot of people early that they needed to, to create a, um, a clear consensus early and that in looking at that field that, that uh, many, but certainly not all, leaned towards Zeldin on that basis. And let me, let, me, let me kind of take apart those two pieces. On the first part, it was, it was a, you know, not a, not a, not a crazy idea, which was, look, let's just try to build some early momentum. Let's get some support, unified party, you know, kind of get, get some real runway. So, you know, kind of fine concept. Uh, I would argue that, you know, Congressman Zeldin has basically squandered that. He's been running for a year. He's been the presumptive nominee for, you know, almost a year. And no one knows who he is. He's got no traction in the public polls. 
Uh, he doesn't have a vision for the state. He's not laid out a case for why he should be governor other than saying no to a bunch of bad ideas from Kathy Hochul. But any Republican in the state would say the same thing, and most independents and a bunch of Democrats too. So it's not, that's not the case for maybe becoming governor, in my opinion. Um, and so I think he's kind of squandered the lead he was given. Uh, and then the second piece is, you know, the judgment was that he would be amongst the, uh, I guess at the time, the five candidates before I showed up, the five candidates were circulating. I think that was driven in part because uh, he obviously was a sitting congressman and had raised a little bit of money early on. Part of that was because of funds he transferred from his own congressional campaign. Uh, and, you know, you know, there are a couple, you know, Rob had lost the last couple races he'd been in. Uh, and so I think that was the kind of the view that of, of the group, Lee was the best positioned. Um, you know, I think that's debatable, obviously. Uh, but, but I think the, you know, the broader point that you know, Rob and Andrew and others have raised is, listen, this is a, you know, this is an um, uh, incredibly important choice. It's going to determine the next four years for 20 million New Yorkers in large part. And it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be decided by a couple hundred people in a very closed, short process. Sure. Sure. Uh, I would also say that, like, you, when you look at Congressman Zeldin, you know, there's a lot of vetting that hasn't been done of him and his record, both his time in supporting the Cuomo agenda, um, you know, his, you know, frankly, lack of effectiveness in public life. It's been 15 years he's been running for office in the same district, more or less, and he's never won crossover votes, and he's never actually delivered anything of consequence to New Yorkers. So I don't know how that record, when, you know, when, when people ask me, because I've been on record saying I don't think he can win, people ask me why. That's, that's what I talk about. It's like he hasn't proven the ability to win crossover votes. He's in a Republican district. It's R plus seven. Uh, he calls it purple, but it's not purple. If, if R plus seven is purple, then we're in trouble. <laughs> so, you know, so he's, he's never won crossover votes. And, and he's been in office a long time and never actually accomplished anything. And people, rightly so, want to see someone who's actually done something and, and, and want something to deliver for them. And uh, we are we are going to uh, hopefully have uh, Congressman Zeldin on this show this week or next week, and uh, we're going to give all the op- candidates an opportunity to be heard. If people listening to you right now, Harry, want to help out, if they want to donate, if they want to volunteer to help petition, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. Well, we'll gladly take all the help we can get. We need a volunteer army to get this done. And so our website is uh, harrywilsonforgovernor.com. We also have our, our campaign Facebook page. Uh, so you can reach out to us on any, either of those. You can also reach me directly at harry at harrywilsonforgovernor.com. Um, I encourage anybody listening who wants to help. Um, we will gladly take it. There's a lot to do, and, and uh, that's the way we're going to change the state. And you should know that uh, what, well, there's one fellow that calls this radio station constantly and has been for a year plugging you, Drew in White Plains. If you get elected, you got to keep uh, Drew in White Plains in mind for a position in the administration because he's been <laughs> your biggest fan on this station for a while. And uh, my friend Len Bernardo, uh, my old colleague from the Independence Party leadership, he's been singing your praises for uh, just as long to me privately and to anybody else that he knows privately. Best of luck, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you a lot between now and June. Thanks so much, Frank. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Harry Wilson, Republican candidate for governor of New York.